Have you ever taken a trip somewhere and you go to see a landmark? I don't do a lot of landmarks. I'm not the kind of person that will stop at the side of the road, get out of the vehicle and go, whoa, this rock, this is cool. I just, I don't, I don't do that kind of thing. It's great. If you like doing that, fantastic. Enjoy your picture with the rock. I just, I'm not about that. I'd rather go through experiences and stuff. And maybe the universe knows that. Thank you, a big thank you, to Jess Brady for filling in the last couple of days. Boy, is she fun to listen to. I caught some online. I was away in Toronto with my family just for a couple of days. My kids went to see the 1975, which most people will look and go, the what? The back in night, what? Is that like a disco thing? What did they do? It's a band. It's a British band. And it's actually a really good band. And they're closing out their tour. If you're going to set up, and this is, my daughter's way smarter than I am, she set up these tickets. We didn't go, but the kids went. And she picked the last night of this band's tour, knowing if you're going to get a show, it's going to be the last night. I think they did five encores. So crazy stuff. But me being a dad and us going up on, you know, earlier than the concert itself, I thought, we got to do something. And so I picked out a landmark that I wanted to show to the kids. And it was a landmark in Toronto because both of them are, are into music. Both of them have big, long playlists. And both of them actually have the song Bob Cajun by the Tragically Hip on their playlist. And you know the line in Bob Cajun that says, That night in Toronto with its checkerboard floors, riding on horseback, keeping order restored, that sort of thing. Well, that mentions, I believe it's two bars in Toronto, but one of them is the Horseshoe Tavern. That's what it's referring to. And I'm not sure whether that's where the hip was. The the actual the lines go on to say, till the men that they couldn't hang stepped to the mic and sang. Everybody always thinks it's something different. I, I saw one time that that was the name of a band that either Gord Downey or other members of the hip or... Uh, or you know whoever happened to be there that night, that's what they were going to see, till the men they couldn't hang. That's a band. It's not, not anything else. And so I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get to Toronto. And I looked it up, and Horseshoe Tavern, which I was in once years and years ago, and I don't even know the band that I saw there. There was a band playing. I don't think we were there very long. So I hadn't done a lot of research necessarily on the Horseshoe Tavern, other than I Googled and saw that it was open. Great, opens at noon. We're going to get there. We'll walk over to the Horseshoe Tavern, and I'll show you guys the actual checkerboard floor that Gord Downey is singing about. And so they kind of went, okay, yeah, we're not doing anything else. Got some time to kill. Sure. So we roll into Union Station, and we get off, and Horseshoe Tavern's about a 25-minute walk. And it was a little windy. It was a little chilly at the time. So I'm lugging them along, and it was lunchtime. So I'm thinking, we'll get there and we'll eat. So we get there, and I've never felt more like a tourist. We walk in the door, and the bartender looks up, and he goes, hmm, I think I know why you guys are here. Three of us have backpacks on. Couldn't look more like a tourist if we tried. The only thing we were missing was a big camera. He says, I think I know why you're here. I said, yeah, I want to show my kids this place. This is a, if you are to look at a place where so many bands either got their start or really earned their chops in the music industry, Horseshoe Tavern is a place to go. And I said, can you eat here? Because I kind of looked around. There was There's the long bar. And he said, eh, no, no, uh, lost the kitchen about 30 years ago. 
And so I said, oh, okay, well, that's all right. That's all right. Uh, he said, we're tied to a fast food restaurant if you want to kind of get something from there and bring it here and eat. And I said, well, well, we'll go and look and then we'll decide. And so we walked about 15 feet into the bar and uh, we were greeted with the smell of someone who had urinated recently. I don't know if there was a concert there last night. And I show them the floor and you look around, it's it's... It's that look that you get and you realize from your kids that what we're doing is kind of lame, Dad. Yeah, it's a bar. Yeah, it's got checkerboard floors. Cool. There's nobody here. There's the smell of somebody's pee. That's about it. Can we go now? So that was my contribution to our trip to Toronto. It got way better for them after that. The 1975 Outstanding. And I'll still go back and see shows at the Horseshoe. I love the vibe there. Welcome to London Live. We are... Well, we're in the midst of a number of things going on. The convention center has a name. We have a new police chief. We've got Raptors and Golden State tonight, which will bring along London's own Jurassic Park. And we'll talk about a few of those things as we go along today. We're going to meet a couple of people. You know how I always like to say, I can't wait until young people run our world. We're going to meet a couple of those people today who've been making a difference for a long time and are about to make a massive difference by getting on a plane and flying to Malawi. That sounds great. Is that a Hawaiian island? No, no. We all need to learn more about Malawi. It is landlocked and it is in Africa. And there's a lot of stuff going on in Malawi that's not ideal. HIV AIDS, rampant. Parents dying, rampant. Kids having to raise their siblings just because they were born first in the family, that's a common thing. And there are a couple of people who we'll meet later on this hour, about a half hour from now, and they have been doing something to help the children of Malawi for years now. And they're going to take that to a new place, Malawi itself. So we'll find out what they've been doing, why they've been doing it, and what they are doing Next, lots of things to come. We'll kick things off in a moment, though, talking about burnout. Do you experience it? Hopefully you're getting some summer vacation time, even if it's a day. We all push ourselves. If you've ever traveled anywhere, have you ever been anywhere outside of Ontario kind of recently? There are places you can go that shouldn't count. New York is one. Don't count that uh, because it's the same. Um, Really, though, Ontario is of its own entity. And you know what we're famous for? Working. You know what we need in life? You need a work-life balance. And it's very difficult to attain, especially if you enjoy what you're doing as a job. But your work-life balance should really aim to be about 50-50. The privileged, well, it may be 40-60. 40% work, 60% play. But in Ontario, I'm willing to put us at about 90-10 if we're lucky. 90% work, 10% play. Don't you think? 95-5? Some people would be that. And with that, no matter what you are doing, no matter how big of a difference you are making, you're getting burned out. And that's a real thing. And it's another one of those stigmas that exist where you can't say that. You can't say, oh, I am completely burned out out. I just, I need a break. You can't say that. Why? Because you're soft. What? You're not going to work hard enough? Everybody else is working. What are you doing? But burnout is a real thing. And there's a very interesting study that kind of brings together the conversation of burnout with some people who are going through it. And, you know, we're 
pretty well off when it comes to health care in this area. But the authors of a study that has just appeared in a very reputable spot have taken physicians, divided them up, men and women, and examined burnout. And you'll be very interested to know what they have found. And you know what? In a moment, we're going to learn exactly that. London Live, underway on a Wednesday, burnout. It is a real thing. If you can stay away from it, great. If you're going 95.5 or 90.10, it's probably time to change that and get more to 50-50. How do you do it? Well, that's the next thing, and especially in the medical profession when you're dealing with lives and saving lives many times, it's a lot harder than you might think. We'll get to the story when London Live returns. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Burnout is a thing, and you have to be able to talk about it. Otherwise, it can have some pretty serious effects. Problem is, it's another one of those items in life in which you can't say, well, my middle finger has turned a shade of orange. So that indicates pretty severe burnout. If it gets to red, I'm going to have to do something. That's not what happens. You can't look at any appendage. You can't take a temperature. You can't measure your heart rate necessarily. You can't do anything in order to figure out if somebody is experiencing this. You have to talk to them, and they have to know what signs to look for. A very interesting paper has been written, and one of the authors is at Western University. And what this paper deals with is physician burnout. So in the medical field, among physicians. But it also breaks it down into female versus male, which is very interesting. And joining us right now is one of the authors. It has appeared in the National Academy of Medicine. Dr. Javid Sakara is with us, associate professor at Western University Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. Dr. Sakara, how are things today? They're awesome. How are you, Mike? Not too bad. When you get a a paper published in a place that is as well known as the National Academy of Medicine, what is that like? Um, It's pretty cool to be involved with the National Academy. They are a pretty prominent organization and uh, have been making a lot of change in the last uh, 10 to 20 years in medicine. One of the things that we're going to talk about is burnout and burnout at the level of physicians, because that is something that you worked out and worked on. When you when you look at at burnout in physicians, how did you attempt to to study this? Because it's it's not like you can line up everybody and say, okay, who's five, five and who's five, eight and who is over six feet tall? Burnout sounds like it would be a little bit more complex to deal with. Yes. Definitely. So in this discussion paper, we looked at the issue of burnout and gender, um, knowing that women experience uh, symptoms of burnout very differently than men. We set out to explore what's in the literature, what kind of research is out there on gender differences in burnout with an eye to better understanding how the experiences of burnout might be different for women and men and how any solutions to burnout really need to consider those differences. So going in, you knew that women experience burnout differently than men? Yeah, I think uh, that was what we as a group of authors truly felt. We had a very 
um, diverse group of which I was lucky to be a co-author on, led by a colleague, Kim Templeman, in the U.S. And we thought that that was what, what, was, what we were going to find. But we were actually struck by how little burnout reach, research actually considers those gender differences and how few surveys actually include demographics so that we can begin to parse out exactly what those differences are and whether or not they're widespread. How do you classify burnout? How do you find it? So the existing definitions of burnout really is a triad of three symptoms, uh, and that's based, by, based on research um, to define the burnout syndrome. They include uh, physical and emotional exhaustion. That's one. The other is uh, cynicism or depersonalization, that kind of feeling disconnected. And the third is feeling like you're not effective uh, or that you can't really accomplish things. So those three things together, that triad, is what defines what we call the burnout syndrome. And it's meeting criteria in each of those categories that helps to um, meet criteria for the definition of burnout. We're talking with Dr. Javid Sukara, an associate professor at Western University's Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry and a co-author of a paper that has been published in the National Academy of Medicine dealing with burnout. Okay, let's then turn to some of your findings. If we look at it being gender-based, what did you find out about female physicians? Well, we found it that the literature is very mixed. Um, while we know that there is some research that suggests that a higher number of women experience burnout than men. That estimate is very wide. It could be between 20 to 60%. We were also struck at how uh, little literature there is out there that looks specifically at gender and how, little, how few surveys uh, actually include gender data. But what we also found was um, women experience burnout very differently. So, for example, women are much more likely to experience uh, category in the symptoms in the category of emotional exhaustion than men. And women's experiences in the workplace are very different than men, particularly when it comes to issues related to gender bias, discrimination, and harassment, which can lead uh, the experience of burnout to to be very, very different. Interesting, and certainly good information to have. When we look at male physicians and burnout, uh, there seems to be a very serious side to this. Tell us what you found with male physicians. Well, we we definitely know that men are also experiencing burnout, that there's an epidemic of burnout. Uh, The burnout rate, for example, in the United States is estimated to be at at the rate of 50% among U.S. physicians and medical students. So we know that the, the rates for both women and men are increasing, that there's a crisis. We also know that um, physicians now are dealing with challenges that, that perhaps weren't dealt with before, and that there's also a huge disconnect between uh, what physicians are being asked to do and the amount of moral strain that is experienced by um, many of us. Man, the word suicide comes up in the paper. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what uh, represents the most tragic human consequence of this problem. Uh, We're seeing a lot more of it. There's a culture in medicine um, that that is in society that asking for help or looking for help is perceived as being weak, but it's important we break that stigma and uh, make sure our friends, colleagues, and coworkers know that asking for help is a sign of strength. 
uh, and that um, they shouldn't feel like this is their fault because it really is something that comes from uh, a system that can be quite toxic. What do you hope that this paper does? I think it's really designed to spark the conversation, particularly on the issue of gender uh, and racial diversity. We have to begin to think about what we're hearing and reading about burnout through that lens, because people who might be racial minorities, sexual minorities, or women are going to be experiencing some of these issues very differently. And if we don't design solutions for the problem without taking these differences in mind, then we're going to probably miss the boat. I, I always liken it to the analogy of, you know, if 12 men tried to design a women's bathroom, probably wouldn't work so well. So we need to make sure that women uh, are part of making these solutions, that we are inclusive in how we approach the issue. We need to study it more, but we also need to address some of the structures uh, within workplaces that make burnout worse, particularly for women, things like paid leave, things like caregiver responsibilities, things like childcare, as well as the issues uh, I mentioned earlier related to sexual harassment and gender discrimination in the workplace. Well, the paper starts a conversation or carries on a conversation, starts it for some people, and we can't thank you enough for doing that because you don't tend to get change until somebody knows it's needed. Dr. Sakara, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Dr. Javid Sakara, Associate Professor, Western University Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry, on a paper, if you're just joining us, that deals with burnout among physicians. Now, they've been able to look at physicians, and again, it's tough to quantify someone who is, say, feeling burned out, or someone who is in the beginning stages, whatever you want to look at. But Dr. Sakara asked a really good question regarding, or made a, a statement that you can turn into a question, that asking for help is actually a sign of strength. And it is. It really is. I mean, some of the best managers are managers who will hire people who could do their job. That's who they hire. Because if you can manage them, then they have that ability. And if you bring them into conversations without worrying that they will take your job, you're going to have better strategies. You're going to have a whole lot of power coming out of your managerial office, coming out of whatever it is that you do based on the fact that you've hired those people, people who are able to do your job. That's a great thing if you can surround yourself with those individuals. When it happens in sports, it works really well. But in doing that, it's kind of the equivalent of asking for help. You cannot be afraid to ask for help. I'm not sure if we're there. If you have somebody asking for help... Is that a sign of strength in our society at the moment? I don't know that it is. It should be. You know, and and again, if you look at young people, I believe it will be because when you look at a lot of the teaching that is done and let's try and credit the school system where it deserves credit, it really has done a good job curriculum-wise in creating group tasks recognizing that in our world today, the best way to get something done is with more than one person. If you are able to work within a group, you can create something pretty spectacular. You can do it on your own, for sure. But you work with somebody else or you work within a group, and if you can get that done, that's amazing. So I think that 
attitude is going to continue to grow stronger as we see our society age. But I'm not sure where they are right now. Is asking for help a sign of strength? Do you do it yourself? Do you actually sit back and say, you know what, if I need help, I'm not afraid to say it. I can't do this. Because what's the first thing that you're going to find in a workplace? Somebody who says, hey, I can't do this. Okay, well then uh, maybe we should get someone who can. That's the first concern that you have. But once it does become that sign of strength, you protect against things like burnout. And you also have a lot better production. We're still trying to figure out that aspect of things. I think we're probably years and years and years away from it if we ever get there, especially in the province of Ontario. But this is at least a good conversation to have. Thank you so much to Dr. Javid Sakara for having that conversation with us. We'll take a break for news. We'll talk about a new London police chief in just a moment, and we will meet a couple of young people in the next half hour who I hope one day are are running our world, at least our province. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. For a Wednesday, there is a lot happening today. It's Wednesday. Convention Center has a new name, Raptors-Golden State Game 3, and if the weather is even rain or shine, okay, we'll talk about this later on the show, but even if it's rain or shine, long as there's no thunder and lightning, there is a Jurassic Park in London on Dundas Place tonight. Tip-off is 9 o'clock, so grab a nap. So that's happening, and London has a new chief of police, and that chief of police happens to be joining us right now on London Live. Please welcome London Police Chief Steve Williams to the show. Chief Williams, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. And congratulations. Thanks very much. So when you become Chief of Police, do you move to a new office? Does the door plate move to you? How does that work? That's a good question. I will move to a new office once John vacates his office. And uh, he's uh, Chief Perry's scheduled to retire in a couple of weeks. So when that occurs, there'll be a bunch of moves and uh, I'll get settled in in a new location. But it's just down the hall. Okay, so not too much different, not a hike. I imagine the office of the chief is a, a nice walk in the morning. It's not too bad. It's um, it's right up where I am right now. So, but it, it it'll be nice. It'll feel nice. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, in 164 years, we have now had 20 chiefs of police. So this is a pretty prestigious position. When you got into policing, was it a goal of yours? You know, I have to be honest. It really wasn't. Uh, when I got in, into pr- policing about 27 years ago, I um, to be honest, uh, it was. The whole uh, profession was intriguing, and, and I ultimately sort of just wanted to be a detective at some point in time. And I worked my way into that area of, of investigations, and, and I enjoyed it, spent spent a pretty decent uh, amount of time there. And then, you know, as, as the years progressed, I had some opportunities become available, and I moved laterally throughout the organization and worked in, you know, human resources, corporate services, professional standards. And I was able to climb the ladder and, you know, it was really beneficial for me um, looking back to be able to move around and get that variety. And there's never a dull moment in this job. But as as I rose through the ranks, I thought, you know, maybe the chief position is within grasp. And, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate to work with some really incredible police leaders who opened up some doors for me and gave me some opportunities and they believed in me and uh, some good mentors. And uh, here I am today. 
the new chief of police in London, Ontario, Steve Williams, joining us on London Live. Chief Williams, when it comes to the role itself, we'll talk a little bit about what you see in London, Ontario. But as far as finding out about it, this was not the day you found out about it. It was the day we found out about it. When you did find out about it, what, what was that day like? Well, it was a bit surreal. I mean, it was obviously a bit of a uh, waiting game because the board uh, has a process they need to work through, and it's obviously a confidential process. So we, even though I'm I'm uh, considered a contender in there, uh, you know, uh, it take it takes a while, and and I don't you don't always know you know what stage you're at or how you're doing. But so I found out last week at at some point, and uh, there was a bit of back and forth in terms of a contract and some of the finer details, but. It was uh, it was a great day. It was a, a bit surreal. Um, kind of had to pinch myself a couple of times, and uh, but it felt really good. And uh, you know, I'm excited about the opportunity. There's uh, obviously some challenges ahead, but I feel really good about the uh, the position and uh, the the direction that Chief Perry has uh, set for us. And uh, you know, I'm really honored to uh, to take this uh, take on this role. It's very humbling, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. You mentioned, as you were being introduced this morning, about pushing forward. Now you've just used the word challenges. If you're to push forward into some of those challenges, what do you see as being maybe a couple of the key ones that you'll be dealing with in the near future? Well, I mean, clearly our budget is, is front and center, and it is this year because we're setting, uh, setting up for a, a new multi-year budget, and there are significant pressures on the police service, and make no mistake about it, we are an expensive service. Uh, somebody has to be the most expensive service, and that happens to be us. Um, there's a lot of demands placed on the police surrounding what's going on in this particular community or with mental illness and, and homelessness and you know, substance abuse and a lot of individuals suffering on the streets you know, from one or usually uh, more than one of those, those uh, afflictions. So this creates a lot of demand for police services. Now, whether we're the appropriate uh, service to respond to these, uh, these issues, which are essentially public health issues, is, is another debate, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of demands placed on the police. And, um, you know, in addition to the regular, you know, we have human trafficking, cybercrime, guns and drugs, gangs uh, that we need to deal with. So we need to determine how we can, um, within a reasonable, uh, sustainable budget, address very, very um, significant demands on the service. So that's, that's one of our, our more or less immediate challenges. When you look at addressing those demands, are there people you can have a conversation with to say, okay, even if it doesn't start tomorrow, we need a way to deal with things so that officers are not making those calls to the same people, same day, same reason that they can be dealing with some of the other calls that they're getting? Yeah, and the key, I mean, there, there is no silver bullet, um, but the key is, you know, partnering with community agencies and, uh, you know, ensuring that we're all on the same page and that we have, uh, you know, sort of a common understanding of what, what these issues entail. So I talked about the afflictions of persons who are, who are struggling with, with, um, with, for different things, for different reasons. Um, I mean, we need a common understanding that the, the police aren't the solution. 
Um, we can be part of the solution, though, but we don't always want to be the pointy end of the st- uh, of the stick, and we can't we can't arrest our way out of these problems. And uh, and and many individuals who are suffering don't belong in the criminal justice system. So we need to by partnering with with uh, you know our, our uh, other community services and agencies determine how how best when we encounter individuals we can you know smoothly and and effectively you know hand off to the appropriate agency. Um, so that our officers can be redirected to, to you know, core policing uh, functions. Uh, but make no mistake about it, we recognize that we're part of the solution and we have to, we have to show that level of cooperation and compassion uh, as we work through this. The new Chief of Police for London Police Services joining us, Steve Williams. Chief Williams, you'll often hear people say, well, if we only had more police presence, we would have a safer this or this would function better. How difficult is it to create a police presence, given what is being asked of officers these days? Well, I mean, the reality is, and if if you ask any one of our frontline officers, that they go literally call to call. Um, there is not much downtime. When I was a patrol officer, quite often you could you could, you know, slice out a part of your shift for for you know a break or uh, you know your lunch. Uh, but quite often that doesn't happen as much anymore. I mean, we try to make sure everybody gets the relief, but but uh, they work solid for 10, 11, 12 hours. And, um, you know, we do, like, there, there is a, a great deal of value in, in visible police presence, um, and the foot patrol is a great, great example. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of our downtown foot patrol. We get constant uh, requests from shopkeepers and residents and business people in the core and Hamilton Road and Old East for increased presence because when the uniforms are on the street, people feel a bit more safe and a bit more secure, and we're we're deterring things from happening um, that are really difficult to measure, but we we uh, we know there's value in having officers there. But when they continually get pulled away for other tasks, um, then uh, you know our our ability to provide that visible police presence is difficult. So it's about you know finding the balance between what's a reasonable amount of police presence and what uh, what we're just going to have to sort of live with because of the uh, the constraints we're faced with. If you look in London, obviously mental health has been an issue, and drugs certainly <clears throat> an issue absolutely everywhere. In terms of violence, I think we like to feel we're in a, a safe city. Um, where do you see that allocation of police power in terms of, of what we need to do to address crime and violence and those sorts of things? Well, it's a good question. I mean, we are relatively in a safe city. I mean, there's no, there's no um, crime violence uh, epidemic in London, but we are not unlike any other you know, major Canadian city. We have our problems and our, our guns and drugs section and our human trafficking unit and and uh, other specialty units are busy, and there's no shortage of work. So uh, we've we've got sufficient staffing in most of those areas, but there are other areas where you know we still struggle. And uh, as we you know work towards our budget, we really want to be able to maintain those uh, those positions and the capability to keep a you know keep a lid on on. Um, human trafficking or guns and drugs, whatever the case may be, at a level that where people feel safe and they continue to feel safe. But it's, you know, it's an ongoing, uh, it's an ongoing issue, uh, but there's no, there's no major uh, difference between our community and others with relation to those, uh, uh, those crime categories, with the exception of perhaps human trafficking. We seem to have, uh, we seem to be a hub here for a variety of different reasons, but uh, it's, it's a challenge.
Chief Williams, as a final thing, if you were able to grab a magic wand and say, okay, I, I wish the general public would do this, that would help policing. Is there anything we can do? You know, one thing we always encourage people to do is to call us when you encounter, uh, you know, even even the small offenses and the small uh, the small incidents are important to us because if we don't know about them, then we can't do the preventative uh, work that we like to do with our with our crime analysis unit. So if we if we if we hear about uh, you know break-ins to homes or garages, for example, or, or you know theft of vehicles or bicycles in certain areas, then uh, we need to know about these things. And and if if we do, then we can you know we have plans in place and strategies to to address those those things. Uh, quite often we hear, you know, uh, after the fact, two weeks later, that, you know, I didn't call the police because I didn't think they could do anything. Well, we really encourage people to call. A lot of it can be done online. And, uh, you know, the more information we have about what's occurring in the community, then we have a better capacity to actually address it. So that at least becomes data. You must make use of data a lot. We use a lot of data. We have uh, a very, very... Uh, productive crime analysis unit who who uh, mine through our data and uh, and uh, come up with with you know crime trends and patterns that the officers on the street can actually address and that's our goal right now is to sort of get ahead of the crime curve instead of waiting until it uh, you know it's a week it's a week later so we we do like our data Chief Williams, thank you so much again. Congratulations on being named Chief of London Police Services. I hope we talk again. Thanks, Mike. We will. Thanks very much. Take care. That is London Police Chief, brand new, Steve Williams. Now, as he says, he's not moving into his new office just yet. Chief John Perry will announce or has announced his retirement, and he's going to retire June 28th. So comes in after that. Interesting, though, and I think what Chief Williams closed off in saying is something that really needed to be said. The idea that if you do spot something or if you do have something happen, that you do need to tell the police. And it's not so that they can solve the crime. Here they come and they're going to find the perpetrator and put him. This is not law and order. We don't live in NYPD blue. That's not what it is. But when you take a look at data And what can be done with that? And as the chief pointed out, when you look at the crime unit and what they are able to do and saying, huh, you know what? If this gets plotted, look, break in, break in, break in, break in. Yeah, we've got that information. Whereas if those aren't reported, it's just, well, we had one break in there, but yeah, nothing else. Oh, wait a minute. There have been seven break ins in the same neighborhood in the last month. Yeah, okay, well, why don't we do this and this? I'm not going to pretend to know exactly what the strategy would be, but you know what? There'd be a strategy put in place. Next thing you know, it's making a difference. Next thing you know, maybe that part of the city becomes safer. And if you're not telling anybody about it, you don't know. Same with anything. Somebody doesn't know a problem is there like we talked about in the first half hour of the show. How are you going to fix it? If you jam that problem way down inside... Nobody knows it's there, and it never gets fixed. That's why you want to be proactive. Up next, we're going to meet a couple of people who have been more than proactive. They've been helping out people who they do not know in a place they have never been, although that's about to change, for years. A place that, if I say it, it's going to sound fantastic. You ready? Malawi. Oh, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii. Uh, no, no, 
Google it. Look on a map. Find a globe. Malawi is not one of the Hawaiian Islands. It sounds like a phenomenal place. It's actually a landlocked country in Africa that battles very harshly with HIV, AIDS, and sees the death of parents far more often than it should. Orphaning entire families. It's a really difficult place to be, but a couple of people in this area have been doing something about that. We're going to meet them in moments. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Time to meet two more guests on London Live. Two people who've been making a difference outside of this community, outside of this country, on another side of the world, one that you really don't think too much about. Yet they've been doing that and they've been making a difference. India Parker and Clark Renault are from Central Elgin Secondary School. And they join us now to talk about years of fundraising they've been doing for children in Malawi. Clark, why don't we begin with you? When this all started, how much did you actually know about what was happening in Malawi? Much? Uh, I really didn't, but uh, when India's mom's friend told us about it, then we looked into it, and actually Malawi is in the center of Africa, and like people call it the heart of Africa because how kind and how like it's just like a great country in Africa. So, wonderful place, but a place that has a lot of hardship, a place where you have a lot of things going wrong in families. Clark, typically, what do you see happening in Malawi in families? Uh, so basically what India and I and our families have been fundraising and giving money to is um, kids, their parents who have died of HIV or AIDS, um, they have to take care of their younger siblings. Kids almost like as young as me in India have to take care of their younger siblings with barely a dollar a day. Like they can barely take care of themselves, let alone the, their siblings. So it's just really, it's really hard for them and you see it all throughout. Malawi. So, you think about your ages. How old are you in India right now? Uh, India and I are both 15 years old. India, when you first heard about stories like that, what did you think? Um, honestly, I just thought, like, how I would, like, I wouldn't be able to do that, take care of my brother and sister, and, um, like, make food for them and make sure they have clothes and like I don't think I would do that at like 10 years old. Yeah, I I have trouble doing it right now and I actually have my own kids. So it's not an easy thing and when you look at the devastation of losing parents, so right at that time you guys started doing something. What did you start to do? Um so we started just with bake sales at uh Western University. Um, and then since then, we've done yard sales and Christmas markets and spaghetti dinners and dances. And bit yeah. by bit, you have raised how much money? Um, right now, we're just nearing $20,000. $20,000. And this, there's no connection necessarily to this. It's not like one of you has a family member in Malawi. This was just... I see a need, let's get to it, let's do something. Yep. That's amazing. And now, not only are you doing that, raising now near $20,000, you're doing what this summer? Um, so this summer, Clark and I were um, going to Malawi, and while we're there, we're hoping to be able to run um, a conference for 100 kids in the village. And what would that conference center around? 
Um, so we're going to have um, sessions, uh, including financial literacy training, um, and we have personal hygiene and um, some people coming in to teach self-defense. And then Clark is running soccer um, drills and games. India Parker and Clark Renault joining us. They are students at Central Elgin, and as India just said, they have raised almost $20,000 for children in Malawi who have oftentimes lost one, maybe even both of their parents to HIV-AIDS. And as India says, she and Clark are headed to Malawi. Do you have your tickets in your hands, Clark? Uh, yeah, we've, we've got the tickets. We're all, we're all set to go. Any idea how long the flight is? Have you looked closely? Yeah, so we're going to make like a couple stops, and we're going to Ethiopia, and I think it's about it's around twenty four hours. It's going to take. How long are you going for? Uh, we're going to be there for two weeks. Fantastic, Clark. What has this whole experience been like for you and for India and for your families? Uh, it's really uh, it's really life changing. It shows how fortunate we are as humans in this country, and it just shows like how lucky we are and how hard it is for them. And if we could make even the slightest change, I think that would, it's it's starting to make the world a better place. And it just, it feels really good doing that stuff. See, we always say on this show, we can't wait until young people rule the world. Thanks for ruling the world even before you actually get into that position. Clark, thanks for doing this. Uh, Safe travels and, uh, and enjoy your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. India Parker, Clark Renault from Central Elgin Secondary School. They continue to raise money and now head off to Malawi itself. We are heading off toward news next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. All kinds of things happening for local connections in the sports world. We've got Shalina Zdorsky and Jesse Fleming getting set for the Women's World Cup of Soccer. That actually begins on Friday. They will play their first match on Sunday. We're putting together a new sports show that you can hear on Sundays. Actually, they'll I think they play the first match on Monday. Um, but a new sports show you can hear on Sundays, which will focus in on a number of the stories in this area and just connections to it. Another one of the connections, J.J. Pickenich who used to play for the London Knights, won a Memorial Cup with them in 2016. He was a member of the now ECHL champion, or is a member, of the ECHL champion Newfoundland Growlers. They won the Kelly Cup last night, as a matter of fact. And that's the ECHL championship. You can't call it the East Coast Hockey League anymore. Because when they started putting teams in Alaska and California, they themselves actually stopped calling it the East Coast Hockey League. So it's just the ECHL now. That's its name. And I got a tweet from Matt Roberts asking a great question that I did some research on. And Matt asked, hey, did they ever get the real cup back or uh, have they had to accept the new replica trophy? And I thought, what? So I looked into this. And Matt is exactly right. Now, the Kelly Cup does not date back to 1919. It does not date back to the 1800s. It doesn't even date back to the 50s or 60s. It began to be awarded in 1997. And there has been a cup, and every year when you're the ECHL champion, you get it, you hoist it high. It's a very nice-looking trophy. And it turns out that 
last year, the Colorado Eagles won the Kelly Cup, ECHL champions. I think it was even their second win in a row. And they celebrated with the Cup. And then it was announced that Colorado was actually going to be moving to the American Hockey League, where they're now the farm team of the Colorado Avalanche. Very little travel. A lot of teams do this. It's why Montreal's farm team is in Laval. It's why Ottawa's farm team is in Belleville. You want to limit the travel. It used to be that if you called a guy up, Calgary used to have their farm team in St. John, New Brunswick. He had to take four flights to get there. It took 16 hours, and then he was tired by the time he got there, and some guys would just get sent back down because they'd, they'd say, well, we needed you for tonight, and you didn't show up. Well, we don't need you anymore. Okay, see you later. Back to St. John with you. So they try and keep everything nice and together. Well, Colorado never returned the Kelly Cup to the ECHL. Never gave it back. They still have it. And the ECHL has apparently created, and they've admitted it themselves. They sent out a statement about this. They have had to create a new Kelly Cup. They actually had a statement um, ECHL Commissioner Emeritus Patrick J. Kelly uh, released a statement and that the tradition of returning the championship trophy to the league was not honored by the Colorado Eagles, despite a confirmed plan with Eagles management to return it in December. So in reaction to that, the league created a new Kelly Cup, complete with the history of players, coaches, and staff that have earned the ECHL championship over the past 30 years, and it's now the Patrick J. Kelly Cup. Unbelievable. Um, that's, that's a true story. Sounds made up. That's a true story. I just got an email from David. David says, Mike, when you're talking hockey, I really thought you would be talking about the Corey Perry story on the front page of the paper today. I wasn't a fan of the way it was done. Looked like newspaper clickbait to me. And I know I'm not a celebrity, but I sure wouldn't want people to know where I lived if I was. Just wanted to know your thoughts on it. Uh, yeah, you know what? I was going to mention this. So, David, no, no time like the present, right? Um, I don't. When you look at a story like this, and if you haven't seen it, it was done talking about a new house that Corey Perry had purchased in London, had the amount he paid for it, uh, had what he was paying in property tax, who he purchased it from. Didn't say where it was, but it kind of narrowed it down a lot. When I look at a story, when we do a story on London Live, the first thing we try to do is say, okay, what is anybody going to get out of this? What are you going to find out? Is this going to create a little bit of conversation. Is this something that you can say, well, you know, that's that's something I didn't know. That's something that that I'm glad I know now. We probably don't achieve that 100% of the time. I hope we do, but we probably don't do it 100% of the time. But that at least is what we're trying to do. So in looking at a story like this, I mean, it's, it's not a story that I would have done because I don't believe there's enough in it for anybody. Because what are, what are we learning? We're learning that, Corey paid X amount of dollars for his house. Uh, you learn what he pays in property taxes. There's a line in it from him that I'm just kind of looking at the story right now. A uh, line in it from him that says he wants to live in London. Uh, oh, there hasn't been a sale like this in London in a while, if ever. Uh, I think that probably could have been found out. Is this, is this the biggest ever? Why wasn't that found out? That leaves me asking a question. Uh, here's a line that says that Corey Perry has a private family. 
Uh, and then there was some talk about his knee injury, and that was difficult to deal with. I don't know. I'm not learning much. So, and the way that it was portrayed, I'm with David. That's a piece of clickbait. That's there so that people will pick it up and, and look at it. I mean, if you wanted to do a story, and this is one that we've talked about on the air before, if you wanted to do a story about uh, an NHLer or even an ex-NHLer, why aren't you doing it about the number of NHLers or ex-NHLers that set up shop in London, Ontario? I don't really care how much Corey Perry paid for his house. He's going to have a nice house. He's done very well at his profession. He's in a profession that pays very well. So... I don't really care what he paid, you know. What did Jay-Z pay for his house? I don't know. He's a billionaire. Has to be tens of millions of dollars. So you can kind of figure that out pretty easily. But the story, I think, is why do people like Corey Perry and other now ex-NHLers or even current NHLers, why do they set up shop in London, Ontario? These guys could live absolutely anywhere that they wanted to. The Anaheim Ducks, when they when the players buy houses, when you play for the Ducks, because it, in California, it depends who you're playing for. There's always going to be a neighborhood where you buy your house and you live if you're going to live in that city, right? So in Anaheim, you set up shop in Newport Beach. If you play for the LA Kings, you have a place in Manhattan Beach. It's just easier to get to practice facilities, easier to get to the rink, that sort of thing. Everybody will have it. It's kind of like saying, okay, if you live in London and you work in the West End, well, I'm going to buy in Byron if I can, or I'm going to buy something along Commissioners because that's close to my work. If you could possibly walk to work, wouldn't that be amazing? So similar sort of thing. So if you have ever been to Newport Beach or you've ever been to Manhattan Beach, actually, I don't care what beach it is. You ever been to California? That's an amazing place. It's not too hot. It's usually always sunny. There's a lot of really cool people there. There's a lot of neat things to do. The beach is right nearby. So why is it that you've got people who could live there 12 months out of the year, but actually choose to live here? You've got people who, even if they wanted to come back to Ontario, could say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a place on the Muskoka's. I'm just going to water ski my life away because I couldn't water ski when I was a professional athlete. I'm going to water ski right now. Well, why aren't they doing that? That to me is the story. That's one of those things that I still haven't been able to answer other than that's how great a place this area is. If you look at whether it's London or you even go surrounding Kamoka, Ilderton, Dorchester, surrounding towns, Strathroy, St. Thomas, Tilsonburg. You know what you're looking at? You're looking at phenomenal places to raise your kids. You're looking at phenomenal places to set up shop. This area is so close to everything without being in it. You know, my family and I just spent two days in Toronto. Love Toronto. It's great. I don't live there. I like living here. But I like being able to zip to a go station and take a train to Toronto like that. I love that ability where I don't have to park downtown. I don't have to worry about it. We can go. We can meet new people, visit new things. London in this area has that. 
We're so close to everything. You're close to the U.S. if you want to visit. Detroit, Toronto, Buffalo, all within reach. You're close to Niagara Falls if you want to go there. You're close to vineyards and orchards and you name it. There's always something going on. Big acts will come and tour here. Big shows come here. I mean, you're never bored here. You can go and live in other cities, and I'm not saying you'd be bored in California. You're not. But you've got to look at what this area offers, and that's why these people come and live here. And I think that's a real thing that needs to be examined. And it's not just athletes. You know, it's, it's one thing because athletes get recognized, especially if they play a sport that you know. One of the best yachters, yachters, yachts people, yacht, I don't, what would that be? If you were really good at yachting, what would, what are you? Captain? I don't know. But they wouldn't be recognized. They could come here, we wouldn't know it. But you know what else we have? We have some of the best cancer doctors anywhere. We have some of the best heart surgeons anywhere. We have leaders in their field. We have some of the best designers of software And they are within our midst. And some of them are making big bucks and own big houses in this area. We just can't recognize them on the street. So we don't know. We're not seeing information shared about them. Because you you wouldn't know who they were. We have amazing philanthropists in this area. And you're even looking at some of the athletes who return here. They are amazing philanthropists. Well, what do you mean? Do you know that they're giving money? Do you know how much they give back to the community? That's something I didn't see in this story. Do you know how much they give back? No. You know why? Because they have the money to do it. They have the generosity and will that they do do it. But they don't have a news conference every time they do it because that's not what it's about. They're not doing it to be recognized. They're doing it because they can. And that's something else that doesn't get brought up because they don't want that. You know, I could knock on the door of somebody or I could send a text right now to one of these athletes or former athletes and say, hey, would you like to do a story on your own philanthropy over the last year? You know what they're going to say? Not really. No, I don't. Because that's something I'm just doing. That's something I'm willing to do, I'm able to do, and I do it out of the kindness of my heart. You don't do it for recognition. That's called being a good person. It's not about you. And so I think that's that's something that, you know, needs to be known maybe. More so than, hey, this person paid this much for their house. That's clickbait. That's not the real story. It's not the whole story. But we do get into a question. Maybe this is a question that I will pose to you. What is the right to privacy? Of someone who is well-known. Because I don't know about you. You know, you want privacy. It doesn't matter who you are. You want your home to feel like a safe haven, right? When you walk in your door, that's your place. You shut the door, you are just you. That's it. That's what you want. So, what is the right to privacy of somebody? Because, you know, we talk about these people being in our community. They're not flaunting it. Would they look at this community and say, you know, now that, now that people know I'm here, now that a big deal has been made out of that, do I want to live here? You know, if, if you don't feel safe in your own home because 
it's been kind of pointed out to the rest of the community, 99% of the community is not going to care. Some of it will. You know, and it's it's one of those things that I would feel violated, personally. I would absolutely feel violated. And that's too bad. This is the community you want to set up shop in, and and this is where you want to be, and now all of a sudden a big deal's been made out of that? I don't I don't know. I don't get it. What is somebody's right to privacy? Let's open up the phones. 519-643-2222. Because I would hope that there is a right to privacy. You know, if you want to see somebody who you recognize and ask for their autograph in a grocery store, you have every right to do that. And it's not even an autograph anymore. It's, you know, take a picture with that person. You have every right to do that. And I don't think they mind that. In fact, I know that they don't. That's, that's, not a, that's not a big deal because they're out in public and they are a public figure. People are public figures. It does happen. But when it's done this way, I find that different. I really do. So, David, long story short, um, or even long story long, that's how I think about that. That's, that's what I feel about that. Look at what is somebody getting out of that story. I don't know they're getting a lot out of that story. Slow news day? I don't know. But this is a great place to raise kids. This is a great place to live. That should be the story. How many people come back here to do just that? Because this is where they want to be when they could pick anywhere in the world and they choose London, Ontario or the surrounding area. That's pretty phenomenal. That's the one we should be stressing. Let's take a break. We'll let you know what's still ahead on London Live. We have to check in with our good buddy Weaver at some point. You know that the Raptors did not win on Sunday. We talked to Weaver last week, and it it was kind of one of those weird universe things. You have a friend who puts on a jersey and watches a game, and they feel if they don't wear that jersey, then their team might not win. Everybody knows somebody like that. Could be a family member of yours. Well, Weaver took it to another step, but it was working. Weaver actually took his dogs out for a walk, put on a jersey, PVR'd the game, and they started winning in their last series against the Milwaukee Bucks. And they didn't stop winning. So wait a minute. They stopped winning on Sunday when they lost game two to Golden State. Well, did Weaver not walk his dogs? Uh, we'll call Weaver into the studio in about 10 minutes and we'll find that out. We're also going to talk about what is planned for tonight at Dundas Place. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It is camp day today. Please do not forget. Please help out. Gives you an excuse to buy a coffee. Got one right here. Have you seen that the price of Arabica beans has actually dropped? I don't know if anybody's investing in coffee beans, uh, but it is on the fall. Half of what it was as recently as 2016. That's the price. Now, don't go looking and saying, okay, well, that's going to lower the price of coffee everywhere. Yeah, probably not. I mean, it it works differently than that, let's face it. But the price of coffee is dropping. Is that because we're drinking so much of it? Is that kind of what it is? I mean, are we doing anything more right now than what we are drinking in coffee? I think you could find just about everybody who could set up their budget and in their monthly budget, there would be enough for them to put down coffee 
and how much they spend. It's wild. Start asking somebody, what do you spend a year in coffee? 519-643-2222. Richard joins us. Richard, how are things? Good afternoon, Mike. How are you this afternoon? Not too bad, thanks. Well, I haven't read the article in the London Free Press, so I can't really comment on that. But when it comes to privacy, I don't care whether you're a celebrity or a non-celebrity. Everybody is entitled, right, to uh, privacy. And as for Corey Perry, how much he paid for his home here in London, uh, how much he pays for property taxes, etc., that is none of the public's business. If he was receiving taxpayers' money, then it's Richard's business, and it's Mike's business, and it's the public's business. But being that he's not receiving taxpayers' money, then no, he's entitled to his privacy. And what the London Free Press wrote there, they should never have wrote only once, right? And I've always respected celebrities' privacy, but only once I sort of invaded, right, a celebrity's privacy. But after all, this was the father of Medicare. I went into the Novia Cafe one time. This was in Regina, Saskatchewan. It's right across from Victoria Park there. And off in the corner, who happens to be sitting there? Tommy Douglas, the father of Medicare. So I naturally sat right to the closest table I could, right? And I kept looking at him, right? And then he finally looked up at me and he said, oh, for Pete's sakes, he said, you know who I am. He said, why don't you come on over? He said, and sit and have a coffee with me and we'll have a chat. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Anyways, I got to sit with the father of Medicare that afternoon and I thought it was fantastic. But other than that, Mike, no, like I said, whether you're a celebrity or non-celebrity, you have to respect their privacy. And on that note, Mike, you have a good afternoon. You have a great afternoon. You know what else I love? Richard calling the father of Medicare, rightly so, a celebrity. Because that's something else that we look at movie stars and musicians and athletes as being the celebrities. Can we look beyond that? Can we look at people who are making a difference in our world, saving lives? Some of them do. Some of them do get that status. I don't think enough of them do. I think a lot of them probably enjoy that. You know, who's the best heart surgeon in London? Who is the best cancer doctor in London? I don't know that we can name that. And I think they probably like it that way. Before we go to news, Jude, your thoughts on this? Hello? Hey, Jude. Oh, hey, Mike. Yeah, I agree with Richard yourself about the privacy, and that shouldn't be distributed. But, you know, take this another step. You know, for example, Corey Perry. Say he goes to the movies or the grocery store to a restaurant. He makes himself, in most cases, himself available to autographs. That's still a privacy boundary. He can say no, but, again, that's the celebrity's request. So, uh, no against the publication, but, you know, privacy, when you put yourself out as a celebrity, you are going to be open, and most of these folks are really kind. And I agree with that, that they can do it. And as for yourself, Mike, you are a celebrity, but I would not want to know where you live. Uh, <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I, I do not fall into that category, trust me, but you know what? Yeah, expectations of privacy, I don't think that's too much to ask. We've got to take a break for news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. just want to get to one more email. We were talking about a story that was in the paper and it dealt with former London Knight, current Anaheim Duck, Corey Perry and his family, what they had paid for their house, different details about that. Um, and just, you know, David had emailed asking what I thought about it. Here's and I'm not going to go all the way back into it, but here's an email from Al. Al says, I have to wonder if this article would have been written the way it was even 20 years ago before the age of Paris Hilton's and keeping up with the Kardashians. Personally, I see absolutely no value in following people who get famous by being famous. There's clearly enough people who do. So there's a market out there for it, which sadly 
makes normal, or sorry, which sadly uh, normalizes depriving celebrities of their privacy. So, yeah, that says it. That says it. And I, I, I still to this day, I have no idea why people are interested in the Kardashians other than with humans. Look at us. You know, you, you want to boil this down? Maybe I do know. We're bundles of emotion just walking around. That's all we are. I still am waiting for the aliens to come, not because I'm wearing my tinfoil hat, but just as an example, I keep wailing, waiting for aliens to come, and if they arrive and don't blow us up first, they would look at us and say, what have you done? What do you mean, what have we done? Uh, what have you done? What have you guys been doing? Uh, well, look, uh, internet, uh... Flying machines, cars that drive fast. Yeah, okay. Uh, we did that on a Thursday. And then, you know what we did? We got into interstellar travel, which is kind of what we're doing now. What have you guys been doing? I don't know. The Kardashians was on last night. Uh, I guess I've been watching that. I've been uh, doing things to make me feel good. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You know, those aliens, if they can't really feel emotion, they're kind of missing out. But that's what we are. We're walking bundles of emotion. And it's like when you get your dog excited. <gasps> you want to go outside? <gasps> oh, do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to go outside? And the dog goes, ah, and is ready to go for a walk. We do that to ourselves. We can hype stuff up. Toronto Raptors, game three tonight against the Golden State Warriors. They're three wins away from a championship. We get all excited. In fact, in about 10 minutes, we're going to talk about where you can take your excitement and be with other people who are excited about that. We'll talk about Dundas Place. There's another viewing party slash London's own Jurassic Park. So that's why we do, that's why we get excited. Is it right? No. No, it is not. It's not right. We should be, we should be doing a lot more things with our time. And maybe that's where we'll leave it for now. Because ultimately, anybody who has celebrity status, if that's what you call it, is also still a walking bundle of emotion. Because every one of us is. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Okay, our good buddy Weaver is here. I have grabbed him from the Country 104 studios. Weaver, I promise I, I won't keep you too long. Um... We have to outline that Weaver may have an effect on the universe. Uh, he is looking very rapturific today in a Kyle, no, that's a Kawhi, yes, Kawhi Leonard jersey and getting set for game three between the Raptors and the Golden State Warriors tonight. Weaver, are you excited about tonight? I am very excited because there's no Golden State Warrior players left to take the court <laughs> to play the Toronto Raptors. Again, another reason why I'm so disappointed in their loss in Game 2, because Warriors were dropping like flies and we still couldn't get a win. But uh, yeah, Golden State uh, has quite the long injury list. So the Raptors, I would assume, uh, need to come out kind of balanced at the beginning, 
weather that first Golden State storm, and we should have a game on our hands. Okay, I like that. Yeah. Good strategy. Now, here's the other role that you play in this, though. Yeah. If we go back to Game 3 of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Milwaukee Bucks, the Raptors were down 2 nothing. Weaver told us last week that's when he started to take his dogs for a walk down by the Thames, the dog splash. He would set the PVR. It would record the first half hour of the game. He'd come home. He'd put on his Kyle Lowry jersey. And the Raptors won four straight in that series. Did it for game one. The Raptors won game one. We were, I'm assuming you did it on Sunday. Yes and no. So Sunday happened to be the 30th anniversary wedding party for my girlfriend's aunt and uncle. And we decided to go to a restaurant to celebrate this. Now, the reservation was for 5.30. There's no way in the world I will throw a restaurant under the bus by naming it. But let me just say that we sat down at 5.30. I think I ate about 7.30, maybe quarter to 8 o'clock. And this is in Ingersoll. Now, I live in London, so I've got to get home, then do the dog thing, get him to the water, you know, go out, get the jersey on, and start this PVR. Game May have started about an hour and 10 minutes late, and the dogs may have only made it to the sand, not the actual <laughs> water itself. It was, it, it, time got me. I don't know what to say. But it makes perfect sense. Yeah, well, I screwed it up for Raptors Nation. And trust me, during that game, as it got clearer and clearer that Golden State might eke out a victory, I was feeling a little pressure. You know what I mean? I kind of screwed up the routine for entire Raptors Nation, and all of a sudden, we're losing. Sorry, everybody. You know, there's a nation on my shoulders here. I feel as much pressure as the actual Raptors players must do. Weaver's universe. I love it. And we're living in it. Okay, so tonight, there's no anniversary party. There's no anniversary parties. But I do want to tell you, we've been kind of in and out of severe thunderstorm watches and things, warnings like you know throughout the day. So uh, what if what if it's stormy? Are, do you have dogs that hide under beds when well, it storms? Uh, I have two dogs. One will love the rain. The other, he might not step outside. So this dog walk thing might not happen either. And and while I did mention we don't have an anniversary party, I should give a mention to my lovely girlfriend, Callie, who's celebrating her birthday tonight. Hey! So should she decide, I mean, her choice, right? So should she decide that we're going out for dinner and drinks? I really have no say. So Callie, if you're listening, just please choose a place that's showing the game on the television. So for Raptors fans, I know I broke the streak and we lost game number two. But this streak was going to break this week either way because I'm, you know, dealing with the birthday tonight and I've got a trip on Friday. I'm actually going. No, hold on, though. Wait. The routine will be broken. I will be at Jurassic Park Friday. No way. Yeah. So uh, it will be in California, the game, but I'll be in Toronto Friday yeah. watching with the masses. Fantastic. Yeah. So I was going to break the streak, but it's for good reason, everybody. It's birthdays and anniversaries and Jurassic Park. Are you going to line up at like six in the morning? Well, no. So the here's plan? the problem: we, we don't get to check into the hotel in downtown Toronto until five, and I can't figure out how I'm going to get the car across the street to the hotel <laughs> with all the Toronto fans. But one step at a time, Mike. One step at a time. You know time. what you do? You park outside at a go train station, and you train down to Union. Oh, that's and then smart. you're right there, and that's then you have smart. no car to park. Yeah. And you know what? It's it's not very expensive, and it's a good way to go. And then you zip right back out, and you can leave. Leave your vehicle there. Now, Ooh. the key is finding a parking spot. That can be a little tricky. Yeah. But you can leave your vehicle there for 48 hours. And, of course, I'm just worried about getting the car into a parking spot in downtown Toronto at my hotel. Uh, what I should be really worried about is the Raptors winning and me, myself, flipping my car in celebration. So, <laughs> I look forward to all of that and more. Weaver, thanks for letting us live in your universe. Thank you, sir. Weaver from Country 104. But, you know, as Weaver walks out the door... 
if you don't park downtown, you can't flip your car. Weaver will save your car yet. Okay, so that's Weaver's universe. He may not be able to do the things he did when the Raptors won game one of this series and beat Milwaukee in four consecutive games. Here's what you're going to be able to do. You ready for this? You're going to be able to get together with all of the biggest Raptors fans in London, Ontario, tonight, I have it here, rain or shine on Dundas Place and watch the game. There is another viewing party. We'll get you details on that next on London Live. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Okay, Raptors, Warriors, as Weaver spelled it out, there aren't any Warriors left to play. It is a war of attrition in both championship series right now in the NBA and in the National Hockey League. Boston has no defensemen left, although the Boston Bruins are calling Zdeno Chara's injury a facial injury. Other people have reported it as a broken jaw. That's definitely a facial injury. Uh, One you may be able to play with. The other, mm, some guys have. I think it was Mark Bavaro with the Giants. This is going back a long, long time ago. Mark Bavaro, remember him? Great big tight end. Played with a broken jaw for like weeks. Caught passes, got tackled. He was just bigger than everybody else, so maybe they couldn't reach his jaw with their helmets. I don't know, but we'll see. But Boston has injury troubles on defense. The St. Louis Blues and the Boston Bruins get going again tomorrow in Game 5. The Golden State Warriors have not had Kevin Durant because of a calf injury. Then Kevon Looney went down with what some people have described as either a fractured collarbone or fractured broken cartilage around the collarbone, whatever it is. He's not playing. And then Clay Thompson, who's one of the best shooters ever in basketball, suffered a strained hamstring. He practiced yesterday. But one of the keys to Clay Thompson is his ability to run around. He's a great shooter, but Golden State's offense is based on him and Steph Curry running around all over the place really fast. And they're hard to cover. If he's not running very well, if he's hobbling around, very different story. So... He's questionable for tonight, but definitely not 100%. That has Raptors fans excited. So if you want to be a Raptors fan, if you are a Raptors fan, or if you just want to be around some excited people at 9 o'clock on a Wednesday, here's what you need to do. Savannah Sewell joins us right now to talk about tonight's viewing party, London's own Jurassic Park. Savannah is the manager of Dundas Place. Savannah, even before we get to that, today's been busy. There's been a lot going on. Yeah, busy day, busy day. Well, the convention center now has its name officially. Uh, We're looking out at the weather, and the weather is a little on the unsettled side. What can you tell us about Raptors fans and downtown London for tonight? Well, we're going to screen the game on Dundas Place again as scheduled. Uh, The guys from the PA shop have been setting up down there in the rain this morning, so uh, our hats off to them, or maybe our umbrellas in this uh, case, but... The stage is set up, and they're, um, we're going to be good to go. Uh, the, the nice thing is we can go in the rain. Obviously, uh, we take precautions when high winds and lightning come into play, and there will be someone that makes the call, and we'll make sure we get that message out. But we're hoping that the weather's on our side. Luckily, the tip-off isn't until 9, so we've got some time between now and then to get ourselves uh, prepared for, for some rain. But I think we can tough it out. Raptors fans are pretty... Uh, pretty excited and hardcore at this point rain we can do you did this for game two how did that work out 
It was amazing. Oh, my gosh. It was such a fast and furious process to make it happen. And there were so many people on the city staff side that just got it done, which is amazing. And now uh, the response was so positive. I mean, you know, it just happened. And to, and to walk down there and just hear the crowd and the excitement, it just really felt electric. And we're hoping that we can uh, have that vibe again today. Savannah Sewell joining us, manager of Dundas Place. We heard when Dundas Place was being created, hey, you you won't believe the flexibility that a flex street gives you, <laughs> the things that can happen. Uh, is this the poster child for it right now? I would like to think so. Thanks for recognizing that, Mike. Yeah, I mean, obviously, <laughs> this is the point. This is the goal, to, to make it as flexible and spontaneous as possible. And you know, it's just been amazing to watch what's going on across the country, right? It's not just London that's doing their own Jurassic Park. So we're just happy to be a part of that national conversation and that spirit. And so, yes, this is exactly the kind of thing we want to see uh, on our street and we hope we can continue to do for our city. Okay, so let's pretend that the skies are going to clear. Like you say, it's 9 o'clock at night, so hopefully a lot of the systems that we have seen today are out and long gone by them. Somebody way in the east can have those. What do fans need to know if they want to get down there tonight? Where do they go? What do they do? Well, you do the same. If you, I guess if you didn't, if you didn't come on Sunday, uh, the screen is set up closest to the rideout street block, so right uh, at that Budweiser Gardens block on Dundas Place. So that's where you're going to convene. It'd be great if you could come. Um, we're going to have a little bit of entertainment uh, in advance with a bit of a DJ. We've got uh, hip hop. Uh, someone she's going to play a couple songs for us just to get the crowd a bit excited, and then we're gonna we're gonna go right into the opening of the game. And we do uh, we do air and screen the entire game, so you won't miss any of it, uh, including halftime. So we play all the we play the whole show. Um, what else can I tell you? Uh, bring an umbrella and a nice jacket just in case. But you know what? We're gonna we're gonna go rain or shine and bring your bring your Raptors love and your energy. Yeah, how's that? Love it. Absolutely love it, Savannah. Thank you so much for the details on this, and enjoy this evening. Thank you. I will. See you soon. Savannah Sewell, manager of Dundas Place. Now, John Wilson will have the forecast for us, but if I take kind of a a quick look ahead, we have had some thunderstorm activity. There is a chance of some showers, very tiny one, but remember, this is rain or shine. We're Canadian. We can get out there in the rain. This is rain or shine. As long as there is no lightning then everything is okay. So that is looking definitely promising because I think the last of the sun, the thunderstorm stuff moves through you know, sometime fairly early on this evening. And remember, tip-off is not until 9 o'clock. This is grab-a-nap stuff. Tomorrow becomes bleary-eyed Thursday. Boy, you don't look so good. Well, uh, yeah, I was up watching the Raptors last night. Hopefully you're saying it in the tone of, yeah, I was up watching the Raptors last night. That Hopefully that's what it is. But bleary-eyed Thursday, give your employees a break. They may be a little on the tired side, but hopefully it will have been worth it for all Raptors fans. Lots of injuries on the Golden State side. Sometimes sports is a war of attrition. Doesn't usually happen in basketball. If you look at injuries in basketball, actually, if you look at injuries... In the sport of basketball, compared to all other sports in North America, 
there are more injuries in basketball. Now, of course, you've got to take that and look at it with, you know, a, a little bit of, hey, wait a minute, there are probably more people playing basketball than any of these other sports in North America. So that's why you're seeing more injuries. But it's not usually a war of attrition in the NBA. Usually you just get there and you do your job and the team with the better plan and the better performances. Dale Hunter's old word, execute. Whoever executes wins. Raptors are... They're getting some things in their favor this time around. We'll see what happens in game number three. Tomorrow is, of course, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. There have been celebrations. There has been recognition continuing, dating back even to the weekend when we had a parade here in London. We are going to talk with the creators of the Memory Project, and in doing so, we're also going to hear from some veterans who were a part of D-Day. We'll do that tomorrow on the show. 75th anniversary If you ultimately want to go back, and we can be all the walking bundles of emotion that we want to be, without something like D-Day, without what it did in the Second World War, I don't know where we are today. So it's important to stop and take note. We'll do that tomorrow. Kelly Wong, thank you for all of your help in behind the scenes. London Live is brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.